Hello, my name is Omar Abosh, and I'm the president of Industry Solutions at Microsoft. And I am Will I Am, entrepreneur, philanthropist, musician, and producer, and my mother's son. And this is Changemakers. There are a lot of people around the world driving change that impacts society. In this series, we'll share stories of transformation directly from the leaders themselves who made the change. We'll talk about their obstacles, their triumphs, their learnings, and how technology has accelerated their mission. Mr. Will, I am. Great to see you again. How are you doing? Ah, oh, it's good to see you again, Omar. Did you know that the average life expectancy in the UK is 80 years old? That sounds good, but the question that we want to talk about is not just how long people live, but the quality of that life and how that has been changing. Yeah, and how to have more Tom Joneses in the world <laughs> who's 80 but living an awesome quality of life. And I love uh, and, Tom Jones. And, and there's no question he's motivating <laughs> a lot of people to live longer, no question. But the quality of life is what we're here to discuss today because around 15 million people in the UK live with a long-term or chronic health condition and a growing number of people are living with multiple chronic diseases. So, serious question, Will. If you could see a chronic illness coming, would you want to know? That's a really tough question. Yes, I would want to know. Yes, I would. I could extend life by, you know, knowing about it and living in ways that don't aggravate it to where I have a shorter lifespan. So, I'd re yes, I would want to know. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, to be honest, part of me, in my case, I'd be like, not knowing is freedom. <laughs> but then, as you said, if you know ahead of time, maybe you can do something about it. So probably better to know. Yeah, well, we have, there's one chronic disease that, not a disease, but a fact that we have, and that's where eventually every single one of us is going to go. There's cars whizzing around the street, but you know not to go in front of a bus or a train or a moving vehicle that could take your life. You know not to, you know, do silly things that will end your life. And if you knew that your body is going to have a hard time with an issue that either caused by what you eat or how you live, knowing that is no different from knowing not to jump in the middle of the street to keep yourself safe. I know that's a very weird metaphor, but I could live a peaceful life going outside in the street because I know the dangers of a vehicle. So if I know that I have preconditions genetically, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay away from certain foods. I'm going to, uh, you know, live a more active, healthier life because I know that. Right. So, yes, I would want to know. I, I like that metaphor. Chronic illness is a bus on the road in your future. Good to know about. Definitely. <laughs> Predicting the future of healthcare is no easy task, but our guest today is leading a team looking to do exactly that. Andrew Rodham is an epidemiologist and the CEO of Our Future Health, an ambitious collaboration between the public sector, charities, and companies in the UK to gather health data and find treatments to prevent, detect, and treat diseases. Their focus is primarily on these chronic diseases that impact many of us later in life, like cancer, Alzheimer's, heart disease, and diabetes. With a super ambitious goal of gathering data from 5 million participants, Our Future Health aims to be the UK's largest ever health research program. And Andrew is here to discuss how they're using genomics and AI on their mission to help future generations live healthier lives. Andrew Rodham, welcome to Changemakers. 
Thanks, Omar. Thanks, Will. Good to see you. So, Andy, you joined our Future Health in 2020. Before that, you were Vice President of Data Strategy at GSK, GlaxoSmithKline. So where does this passion for gathering and using health data come from? And what makes you uniquely prepared to lead this team? Well, I think it started when, in my sort of early days of education, where I started studying statistics and epidemiology, and really that insight into what difference could you make by looking at data, learning something about a population or a disease, or in other areas outside of of sort of health, things about society in general, and seeing how that learnings actually allow you to make differences in the future. So I started my life doing work in infectious diseases back in the 1990s, around the time HIV was a growing epidemic, and we were still struggling to find effective treatments. And a lot of the work we did was understanding optimal ways to treat people, what happened in real life, and then how could you make a difference to people in the future. I went on to do a lot of work in large-scale public health in the, the sort of early parts of the 2000s, looking at oncology, particularly in breast and ovarian cancer in women, where we studied something like 1.3 million women in the UK to look at what are the factors that really lead to ill health in sort of middle and later age, and really to unpick some of the things that you can make a difference on. And it's really that sort of passion of saying, how can you take something that you can observe about a bunch of people, understand something about what happens to them, and then go back with something which will make a difference to life in the future? And it's that that's sort of driven me all the way through from being an academic, working in industry, working at Amgen, and then at GSK latterly, to really kind of see this is probably one of the most important missions now around the world, around how we can truly think about healthcare, truly think about prevention as a way of changing the future of the disease landscape. So we move away from this sort of treating sick people when they get ill to actually getting people to start to think much more about how they may keep themselves healthier and ultimately live healthier lives for longer. Inspiring. Yeah, the intro that you had just really made me think of my data, my genome, and the, uh, the information that's passed down from my ancestors we're all walking data. And my uncle passed away in 2000 to cancer. My grandmother to dementia and heart disease and diabetes is in my family. It's data passed down to me. And yeah, so whether you know mentally because someone told you, your body knows. Just putting those two together after just absorbing the intro just made me realize like, wow, we all should be a little bit more mindful and take precaution in how we eat, how we live, how we are active. So sorry for that little rant, but our future health is on a mission to diagnose chronic issues earlier. Why is that especially important in the UK and what makes the UK the right place for this program? Well, so I suppose why now? Why chronic diseases? And why really tackle this? And there's a few things that you would think of there. One, amazingly, life expectancy is actually declining in most Western countries at the moment compared to sort of many, many years of increase. And that's not just in relation to the COVID pandemic, where lots of changes happened, which were slightly unusual. It actually started to decline a little bit before that. And that's largely a combination of lots of factors that come together 
around lifestyle, around behaviors, mm-hmm. but also, you know, the longer people live as well. So what we've been really effective at is treating people who are sick. So we treat people that are sick, but they ultimately live in a sort of less good quality of life at the latter part of their life. So people who get diagnosed with dementia or people who have heart attack strokes, they live longer, but their quality isn't as good. And really, if you're going to transform healthcare, if you truly think that trying to make a difference to people is the primary goal of what we're trying to do, what you've got to do is try and find disease earlier before it really becomes symptomatic and clinically symptomatic. So you take anyone with examples of cancer, the majority of cancers are diagnosed relatively late in the disease process. So they're not that treatable. You end up with pretty advanced disease, multiple disease sites. So it's not just in your breast. It can be in your breast, the ovaries, the lungs, et cetera. And we haven't made those advances in getting to people earlier and spotting those signs that allow you to sort of either intervene earlier, change your lifestyle, give better treatments. And, you know, why the UK? Well, the UK is probably one of the best places in the world you can think about doing this. We have the huge benefit of the NHS and the fact that we have a single system where we can follow people. So we can link together for the volunteers who join the program their information with their healthcare information so we know what happens to them from their very earliest point in life all the way through to the very end of life. And that's a really, really important and powerful thing, something that many, many other countries around the world can't do. And I think also there's a real history in the UK of doing lots of large-scale population studies, so the real sort of powering of this kind of activity, you know, going back actually into the 1940s and 1950s when we led the world in the British Doctor Study, which established the link between smoking and lung cancer, through to very recent examples like UK Biobank, which is powering hundreds and hundreds of research projects today, Genomics England, which has shown how genetic sequences are used to better diagnose people with rare diseases, with different cancer types. So that combination of the expertise, the data that we already collect about people and make available, is the really the time now to deliver on this sort of new mission of thinking about how do you transform healthcare through this earlier intervention, earlier diagnosis and prevention of these chronic diseases, which, as you say, well, we all know somebody in the family, friends, relatives, who've had at least one, if not more of them over their life. Mm-hmm. Amazing. And I love the the real specific anecdotes and examples you've got there, Andrew. I mean, it is very thought-provoking. So you've set a goal of gathering data from 5 million people. How on earth does one go about recruiting all those folks? And what specific information are you asking those people for? Yeah, that's a really good question. So everyone, I always sort of frame it as, you know, you can put a strategy slide up of saying 5 million people, it's a small little thing, that's all we've got to do for the next few years. But it's actually a hugely important, difficult task. So the approach that we're taking at the moment is broadly, we have the ability to essentially write to everybody in the UK to invite them to take part in the program. We have access through the NHS because we have a partnership with the NHS on being able to access people's details so that we can anonymously from our side, we don't know who they are, but the central NHS does, we can invite them to take part. We're trying to make it as simple and as easy for the participant as possible. To get to 5 million people, as you can imagine, it can't be a long and complex process. So we ask them to go to a website. Ultimately, it'll also be an app as well. You sign up, you give your consent, you learn a little bit about the program and decide whether you want to join. So we've got explainer videos that talk about things like what is genetics? Do you get information back, etc.? How do we protect your data? After that, there's really only then two more things you need to do. One is we ask a questionnaire about your lifestyle and your current health. 
And then we ask you to book an appointment to turn up to a place around the UK where you can give some blood. And that's a sort of 20 to 30 minute visit. Essentially, what we measure there is some basic sort of health check about yourself. So we can measure your height, your weight, your blood pressure, your cholesterol, and give you as a participant some immediate feedback about your current health. So you can walk away knowing what those measures are. And the blood is taken. And that's what we use to extract the DNA from the blood. We store the rest for future use. So researchers in many years' time can come back and relook at this blood and relook at new markers, new things that they don't know they want to look at currently. And then the DNA is extracted and analyzed for the sort of genetic code for that particular individual. How much blood is taken? About 12 mils. So two small test tubes of blood, very, very small amount. Really, I suppose the other thing to say is the blood draw experience is just the start. We learn what we're now working through with the team, given that we've just started recruitment, is what do we give to people back over time? So it's not just a once only kind of you turn up and you give me blood and you walk away and that's it. But we can give you a lot more information over the course of the next few years based on your genetics, based on the information we've got yeah. about you and help you kind of create that truly awesome kind of product experience for you. I mean, in the realm of data, yeah. there isn't data that's much more personal out there than one's healthcare data. Yeah. So how do you keep patient health data private? And will patients have access to information gathered from their own data? So on the first point, you know, privacy is like the number one concern that people have about sharing data. And as you say, health information about you or about me is the most personal information that people will ever choose to share about themselves. So we try to take every possible step to make that data safe, make it secure, and to, when making it available for research, to depersonalize it as much as possible. And that's an imperfect science. It always has been. There's nothing new there. But being really, really clear with people about what the steps are that we're taking, being really, really clear that we're not sharing identifiable information, being really clear that we're taking and working with you know, some of the best companies around the world who have thought through data privacy, data security, and working with to ensure that really when we make um, enable researchers to access the data, we've gone through a process of checking what they want to do so that only those researchers with you know, an approved project who've got a registered researchers sort of on our system can actually get in to access that data. But that becomes, you know, really, really important to us. And in terms of the accessibility of participants to their data, that's absolutely what we want to enable. I think, you know, you asked well the question at the start, you know, would you want to know about your health in the future? And that's exactly the sorts of questions we want to tackle because some people absolutely want to know everything there is about their health. Lots of people are very happy to contribute to research and know nothing about the future, but we want to enable that to happen. There's a lot of careful thought needed to make sure that what we're doing doesn't overly scare or overly reassure people, but that's really where we're going next. And that's why I'm saying the next step of the sort of experience journey for us to kind of build on is that how do you give people information about their own health? How do you let them see accessibility to their data? And how do you give them sovereignty of the thing that they're donating to you is by becoming a volunteer? And traditionally, genomic research around the world has primarily used white men as the data set. What are you doing to recruit a cohort that is diverse and reflective of the UK population? Yeah, no, it's a really good point. You know, probably over 85% of the genetic information we have today comes from people primarily of European ancestry. So 
it's very difficult when you're starting to think about how does this transform different ethnic subgroups of the population. And in the UK, that's really people who come from sort of South Asian backgrounds, from the India, Bangladesh, Pakistan, but then also of the African subpopulations, the Afro-Caribbean populations who we have in the UK, which I make now a very strong sort of about 20% of the adult population is non-Caucasian or non-European backgrounds. It's a real challenge to do that. And I think, you know, if you look through the learnings, and there was a lot of positive learnings from the pandemic around how do you engage with groups to get them to uptake vaccine? How do you use community work to do that? We're going to build a whole strategy around really thinking about what's the right way? What are the barriers for people taking part? How do we address those barriers? Do we have to work with faith groups if it's religious groups of people to try to get them in? Do we need to make the appointments, the experience even better than what it is today to get closer to that community, to really connect with them in a way that makes them start to trust us? Do we need to use influencers, social media, different ways of kind of connecting? There's sort of a simple way of sending everybody a letter, but that's never often enough to get to the people who are resistant to that. Do we understand why they're not taking part and tackle that? So it's an ongoing program of activity. It's easy in a way to recruit the people who always join research. And we need to do that really, really well. But then we need to put more of our effort on how do we get to the people who don't normally take part? That's not just in ethnicity. There are also real challenges in how do you get to people who are in the lowest socioeconomic classes in society. We need to get those people in because when you look at the outcomes of health with those people, and COVID really uncovered this to a huge degree, you know, the disparity in health between the highest and lowest in society is so big now. We must tackle that inequality to try to bring up the sort of quality of life and the life expectancy amongst those who are really suffering. Yeah, and also the uh, folks working in genomics being diverse as well. So if there were more people mm. training data, gathering information on, on genes, then folks that look like them, that yeah. come from these communities, would feel more safe and knowing that, you know, there's there's not much to worry about when they can relate to the folks that are they're working exactly. with. During the pandemic, we saw how uh, opinions on healthcare changes based on the race, the age, social economics, and religion. And this one study found that the majority of Black people in Great Britain have been discriminated by healthcare system. How do you address this issue while also asking people to trust you? Really good question. <laughs> um, it is, you know, it's about ultimately our future health the name implies that it's about trying to get to every type of person and get them to join. I think you just alluded to some of the ways of which you tackle that, which is you have people who look like the people you want to recruit who feel that they trust you. Because if I've got a team of people who all look like me, you won't get the trust of the wider part of society. And that's really, really important. So it's working, engaging with, talking to the communities who you want to connect to, and really focusing on that. Andrew, you're partnering with biotech and pharmaceutical companies. So what access do they have on this patient data? And what promises have they made to ensure that they don't misuse the data in any way? So everybody who comes along to use the data goes through exactly the same process, whether you work for the NHS, whether you're an academic, a clinician, whether you work for a pharma, biotech, life sciences company, big or small. 
we have a standard process which requires every potential researcher to set out essentially what they want to do. We have a review process to make sure that's in line with what patients have actually agreed to, what participants have agreed to. And then they all have the same way of accessing the data. So yes, they will have access to the data, but they won't have any different access to anybody else. And really their partnership is not to get access to the data. Their partnership is because our future health is founded on the principle of no one entity is going to solve this big problem we're talking about. It's not going to be the government. It's not just going to be the NHS. It's not just going to be academics. It needs companies involved together to form a true collaboration. And again, I think, you know, COVID has really helped sort of bring that message to the public as well, understanding that it was many, many people who came together to create a vaccine and to deliver it back to the population, which helped sort of move us away from the pandemic in a record speed from, you know, having worked in a pharmaceutical company developing vaccines before. That's a really, really great example that we use to sort of talk to people about why we need this level of collaboration in the future. I totally agree with you that the Actually, just I've been thinking about what to pull the data sets together that you need. They're not also going to come from one organization, no. so that's going to be a critical thing. Yeah. And you're right, the COVID example of an ecosystem of organizations coming together is just perfect. I know that the plan you had was to send out questionnaires to some UK residents in the autumn. How has that been received so far? It's been going really well. So we started back in the beginning of October. Now we've got over 100,000 people have joined the program in the space of about eight weeks. Wow. We've taken, or we are now currently taking somewhere around 1,500 blood samples every day. Gosh. Across the country, we've built a bank of over 30,000 samples already taken. There's a natural lag from when you get your questionnaire to when you can get an appointment when you sort of come along. So it's been taken really, really positively, and the slope is huge. And where is this happening? In the home, in the hospital, in the clinics? So you get your letters to home, and then it's happening at the moment in regionally in sort of four regions in the UK, in West Yorkshire, Leeds, Bradford, an area in Greater Manchester, in Birmingham, actually here in central London. But essentially, you fill in the questionnaire at home, you do it all on your phone, tablet, computer, and then you come along to one of our clinics because you need to take blood from you from a vein. That means that we have you either in a pharmacy store, or we have you in a shop, or we have you in a mobile van in a... Actually, the current ones are in supermarket car parks. So when you go for your weekly shop, you can join in just as you're going in and out of the store. In the future, we're looking at all of the other ways we might need to be able to do that. So, for example, you know, would be taking blood at home be the right thing to do for some people because they can't get to an appointment? And so that, that's all in the plan for the, the next year and, and beyond to kind of, again, increase the accessibility, increase participation from people who may not be able to take part. Wow. Can I ask a question? One day, me and my mom were at the supermarket and she says, when I was younger, there was no such thing as organic fruit because everything was organic. There's no need to yeah. market to, to market it. But because food and our access to complex sugars that are not truly natural and the correlation between that and diabetes, are we seeing a spike in people that are, that are going to either get diabetes that is not traditionally in their genetic yep. data. Are you seeing that? Yeah. So if you look at type 2 diabetes, which is the sort of lifestyle impact of diabetes, which classically affected sort of people over the age of 40 or over the age of 50, it was a very late in life thing. 
Now you're seeing people, even teenagers, being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. Wow. But certainly in their 20s and 30s. And the epidemic of diabetes is just growing. It's probably one of the biggest kind of public health challenges in sort of common chronic diseases that we need to tackle because lifestyle coupled with genetics, but lifestyle particularly has made a big difference to that as a condition. There's something, you know, it's directly correlated with obesity. Is that yeah, it's correlated with obesity, which is correlated with food intakes, which is correlated with exercise and diet. And, you know, there's, that's why, you know, you need studies like this, which are really, really big to unpick the fact that there's all this complexity around, you know, what you eat, how you exercise, what your activity and lifestyle is like. You need vast computing power to store all the data that you're planning to gather. How much data does it take to store a genome, and how do you scale that to accommodate data from 5 million people? <laughs> um, quite a lot of data. Um, so we're starting with the genetics, so we're not going to calculate everyone's whole genome, which is the huge sort of code from beginning to end of an individual, for each individual, we're taking just a small subset of that, the things which vary most often, because 99% of our DNA is identical between us, only small amounts that have variations. So we're focused on the variations that we know are associated with common things which happen to you, like cardiovascular dementia, Alzheimer's, and immune diseases. But that still takes a few hundred megabytes per individual, and something I never really appreciated until I started this job, Every time you multiply by 5 million, the number that you started with gets really, really big, really, really quickly. So as I keep pointing out to my team, every time it costs one pound more to do something, that is 5 million pounds I need to add on to the budget of the program Wow! um, to deliver this whole venture. So, you know, the genetic data is a big component, but there's also things like some of the healthcare data. So, you know, healthcare has lots of images stored about people. Images, whether you're doing MRIs, CT scans, take up a huge sort of capacity of storage. So, you know, it's by, for us, it's by working with partners like Microsoft on the storage, the compute power that you need to access that, how you scale that, and then how we think differently in the future. So it's not always about moving data around from place to place. It's about moving the computability to actually access and interrogate the data in a sensible way to apply AI, ML algorithms, or even simpler sort of statistical methods to really understand the power and and insights that you can generate from that data. Wow. I mean, I have to say, I'm personally blown away by what I'm seeing in the development of AI at the moment. Talk to us a little bit about how you're thinking of using AI to mine all this data that you're talking about. And so What are some ways that you're using technology to make our future health a reality? So for us, it's very much about building the program and building the capability to allow everybody around the world who's doing research on this to come to us to actually access this data and to apply their bright and brilliant thinking around AI, machine learning, technology, genetics, biology, to this information that we collect about people. So It's not necessarily us who's going to do all of the AI and ML. It's about getting the community together and really creating that sort of insight ability for others to do it. Fantastic. I'm looking forward to seeing what you and the ecosystem around you can help achieve. So, Andrew, what does the future of healthcare look like if we just don't invest in programs and initiatives like Our Future Health? Well, I think it continues to go the way it's going at the moment. So if you look at healthcare in the UK or around the world, people are getting older generally aging at populations, generally being diagnosed with multimorbid conditions, you know, living with multiple conditions at the same time in later life. 
And we're not making a huge progress in getting to people earlier. We're not making a huge progress in getting them to live a healthier life for longer. We're getting them to live a sicker life for longer at later points in their life point. And if we don't tackle that, what happens is you see, you know, whether it's the NHS, whether it's the healthcare system in the US, whether it's the healthcare system in the rest of Europe or the world, you know, more and more people clogging up the system because we treat sick people and we treat them very, very well. But we're never going to clear that backlog and make a transformative change if we don't focus on prevention. Because all the advances, as I said, that's ever happened have been brilliant in terms of treatment, but they haven't really tackled the problem of how do you get into people at the right point early enough to truly make a difference to their outcome. That's fantastic, Andrew. And I mean, you're right. What The current trajectory we're on is just not sustainable, not only because it's horrible for all the people, as you said, with multiple illnesses all at once, but the cost is impossible yep. to bear for society. So thank you so much for being here with us today, sharing yep. your insights. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. I learned so much. Thank you so much. Yep, thank you. Will, do you reckon that they'll be able to recruit these 5 million people to, to show up and share their data? My uh, optimism says yes. 5 million is a lot of people. And although they have, you know, they're taking great strides now, that's the willing. And there's so many folks that are not willing. And the, I think the majority of folks potentially could be leaning to the not willing side. How do you inspire them, motivate them? to show up and participate and draw blood. It's hard enough to get people to vote, let alone draw some blood. Yeah, I was, I was sort of thinking, I didn't go there, but it's like the country does get the majority of people, for example, to follow a vaccination program for their kids, the, the majority. But then there's always like that hard rump. We don't want to do that. And so it'll be interesting to see how that all works. And I mean... Where Andrew and co are going is super ambitious. I mean, they're looking at trying to figure out how to solve diseases like Alzheimer's and cancer. Do you think that we'll figure some of that out in our lifetime? The answer is yes. I think uh, we'll see that so, in our so lifetime. So even though we're like, you know, a pair of old guys, it's going to happen in our lifetime? I Yes. <laughs> because I believe in, uh, I believe in humanity. I love science. I love technology. I love the the urgency to solve the world's problems with advanced tools. Do you think we'll be able to solve diseases like Alzheimer's and cancer in our lifetime? I haven't got a crystal ball, but here's the thing. If I sort of said to you 25 years ago, like just 25 years ago, would we have predicted the iPhone? Would we have predicted autonomous vehicles? Would we have predicted low Earth orbit satellites tracking everything on the planet? I, I don't think so. Uh, you know, so the, the rate of progress has been unbelievable the last 25 years. The next 25 years is going to be much, much faster because we're building on all this, this tech that we have now. And if we think about neuroscience, synthetic biology, genomics, all these areas that are exploding in innovation, I think that, yeah, probably we will solve some of these ailments. Yes. Will, fantastic Thank episode. You. Great to be here today again, like making us think, hey? It was a good one today. Thanks, Andrew. He's tall. <laughs> and he has a radio voice. If he wasn't doing what he was doing, he could, he could be on BBC. <laughs> it's BBC, you know, it's Andrew here. I'm super tall. We need him doing what he's doing. Yes, we do. <laughs> Cheers, Will. All right, thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye.